Hey everybody, welcome to episode 11 of Against Everyone with Connor Abib. This is the first episode that is going to be on the podcast version as well as the web series version. I mean, the other ones will be backlogged, so you can still get them as a podcast, and you should. Um, also, please, if you enjoy the show, if you've been enjoying it up to this point or um, after this point, um, <laughs> please... Uh, sign up for my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib to support the show. All right, episode 11, I'm talking about the very cheery topic of mass shootings and how they relate to political revolutions and our political cultural climate right now. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Today's episode is called Shoot to Live or Mass Shootings and the Politics of Presence. In this episode, I want to talk about mass shootings and how they relate and connect to the political movements of our time. Um, how they're related to this sort of cultural milieu <laughs> and what marks uh, our political uh, climate right now. To do that, I'm going to talk about the nature of a few revolutionary political movements, and then I'm going to talk about the sense and nonsense of meaning that we're experiencing in our moment as evidenced by mass shootings, like the Pulse nightclub shooting, which was a really intense m moment for anybody in the LGBT community, and the recent Las Vegas shooting, and so on. And no, I'm not going to talk about false flags, <laughs> which I think are mostly dumb and mostly boring. Um, I think there are some notable exceptions, but I'm not going to talk about those. There are a million Pizzagate uh, shows and websites you can go to to look at that kind of stuff if that's what you're interested in. It's not something I'm particularly interested in. So let's start with political movements. And a quote um, to frame this all by the literary critic and philosopher Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin said, every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution. Let me say that again. Every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution. There's some dispute about how exactly Benjamin worded this, but let's just go with that. Every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution. In other words, fascisms rise up out of the ruin of old political actions that didn't carry themselves out. But I think it's important to flip over Benjamin's statement, um, his sentiment, because we also get something of value if we do that. Every revolution bears witness to a failed fascism, uh, fascism that failed to destroy our spirits, um, failed to inspire uh, trust in their authority, failed to terrify us into a state of constant inaction. Um, so you, you get this from the quote, and it's inverse, um, that revolution and fascism are almost like necessary partners. They're in a way, and I talk about this in episode one a bit, when I talk about resistance and oppression, they're dependent on one another. Um, they're woven into the fabric of each other. I realize this is a claim that... <laughs> 
people might not like that I'm saying revolution and fascism are tied to each other. But bear with me. I'll keep going. You can see it in just the word revolution itself. Revolution is a cyclical structure. It means roll back, you know, revolve. Um, revolution. Revolutions show up as a sort of light to the shadow of fascism. Now, I'm not saying that they're causal. I'm just saying that they're intertwined, like you turn a light on, there's a shadow, but I'm saying that they're intertwined with each other. They're necessary components of each other. A lot of people don't like this sentiment. It's one that shows up in the excellent works of Michael Hart and Antonio Negri in their books Empire and Multitude and so forth because it makes it sound like not only is revolution a bad thing, which is not really what I'm saying, but also it makes it sound like no action is needed, that revolution will just sort of appear if fascism is there. But let's go with that for a little bit, that revolution and fascism are corresponding gestures in culture, that they mirror each other and see if we can come up with something interesting um, from it. If you look at what kind of revolution is going on, you can also understand what kind of fascism is going on, and vice versa. Um, I think that a really great place to start for prime example of this is the Occupy movement, which is still being talked about, although I wish were being talked about a bit more. Occupy was a sort of immune response to the corporate uh, interest fascism that we saw, this sort of disenfranchising power of government so intertwined with massive corporate interests that it invaded every aspect of life. Um, it, it appeared everywhere, but also at the same time ignored everyone that it was appearing for. Well, most everybody but the 1%, right? Is that, that was the sort of rallying cry. Now, if you remember, Occupy happened right around the time that Steve Jobs died. And there was a New York Times uh, cover uh, page, front page, that had a photo of Steve Jobs, and there was also a photo of Occupy, and it was on the same front page. And I think that this is a great springboard because it's a perfect illustration of the fascism revolution intertwining that I'm talking about. There was Steve Jobs, the individual, the lone visionary whose calculated vision of wealth showed up as products for the wealthy. Um, tied to African militia groups, tied to exploitation of workers, exploitative resource mining, attacks um, in some ways through Apple products on sexual expression. Um, Jobs was notorious for not contributing to charity at the time. And on the other hand, you had Occupy. It was uh, not a lone individual, but in fact a group of people with no leadership identity, with no spe specific identity at all. There was all this networking happening under the radar using some of that tech that St Steve Jobs trafficked in to coordinate um, at a moment's notice in group synchrony, undergoing, undergoing elaborate decision-making processes. It was centerless. So. You know, one more time, you know, there's this icon of lone capitalism, and then there's this powerful mass swelling, this coagulation of interest in uh, activism. So the media, when Steve Jobs died, they nervously kind of shifted in their seats and they tried to get people to talk about Jobs and Apple as much as possible because they were getting a little tired and confused by Occupy. There were lots of stories, and you remember also like tweets at the time that were like, what was your first Apple device? What was the first thing you bought from this corporation? 
it's an easily answerable question. Well, I got this at this moment in time. This is what I wanted, and I had it. My Apple IIc, that's actually what we had in my house. Um, <laughs> it was a negative image, that question, of the question they were asking Occupy, which was, what are your demands? And the, and the answer was also a negative image of the answer because Occupy refused to articulate the demands. We don't have demands. It wasn't because they were being coy, but it was because to have an answer to that question was to turn their revolution into this sort of, what's the first Apple product you bought? This consumerist trap. Well, the first demand that we want is this and this and this. It become this sort of Amazon wish list of demands. So the idea was, we don't demand, we occupy. We occupy space and we make it new. Just like putting up four walls and a roof turns space into a house, <laughs> you can just take space and turn it into a home. Occupy was saying, we're here and our presence takes this space and makes it something different than it was. Now just as a side note, it's interesting, well, it's actually not a side note, it's <laughs> rather important to the rest of the things I'm saying, but it's interesting to look at how that revolution failed and become, became the world that we have now. We have a presence economy. The presence, the occupation of the fascists is everywhere. It could be Trump, it could be the neo-Nazis or whatever. I'm not gonna go into their side of presence that much here, but it's important to note that our fascism uh, that we have today absorb this presence factor. Its idea is to occupy the space in the mind and be ubiquitous. That's the political field we're working in today. It's one of presence. And it's a continuation, essentially, of some of the stuff that was happening around Occupy and before that, too. But we've seen a gradual growing. Presence. How much attention do you have? That's our currency now. That's the mark of power. How much attention are you getting? People call it the attention economy. Whether it's presence measured by Twitter followers or by, you know, presence of global intimidation, how much attention are you getting? Let me talk about a dark side of this political revolution of presence instead of Occupy. Talk about ISIS. What could be more indicative um, <laughs> of ISIS than the concept of presence? ISIS, like Occupy, they have no real political aim. Um, they might say they have some aims, but they're pretty unarticulated. They're like this terrorizing antibody. They show up, they kill, and they try to claim every single terror act and mass shooting as theirs. Oh yes, that was an ISIS connection, and our media plays into that completely by reporting it again and again, even though so many are clearly completely unrelated to ISIS, because people in ISIS know that their presence in our minds gives them strength. As an aside to all this, the uh, name ISIS has been really interesting to me. I know some people call them ISIL, but um, ISIS has been really interesting to me in a sort of occult sense. There's an Egyptian myth about the god Osiris, which I'm going to tell you a very, very simplified version. So Osiris was this sort of ruler god of Egypt, and his brother Seth wanted to be the ruler. He was jealous for whatever god Seth reasons. So he killed Osiris and then eventually cut up Osiris's body into a bunch of pieces and cast them across the land. Isis, um, in this myth, is the Osiris's wife, and she decided to reassemble Osiris from all his body parts and resurrect him. And she did reassemble him. She did resurrect him, except 
She found every body part except, except his penis. <laughs> so think about that. We have this group of dudes wandering around the Middle East, you know, this troop of idiot men roving, screaming everywhere they go, ISIS, 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 calling out to be heard, ISIS. You know, the collective representation of the severed penis of Osiris wanting to be found so they can be loved again. That's just an aside about ISIS's uh, presence politics that I think has uh, an interesting sort of spiritual, cultural, metaphorical dimension. Presence. We can see this in many places politically. We can see it in political economy. We can see it in Bitcoin, for instance, which works by having every exchange be present for every user of Bitcoin. The presence of the transactor, the people using Bitcoin, is the new like gold standard. Presence is the foundation of Black Lives Matter. It's the presence. It's the uh, foundation of anonymous and hashtag activism. It's the way political battles and movements move. And some of these are really amazing and great and good. And some of them are bad. The problem with presence, though, is that it's inarticulated. It's not a formulation. This is the issue, like I said before, um, that people have with Hart Negri's work, which is nevertheless excellent, and you should read it. I think particularly Multitude is a good one to start with, even though it's the second one. Presence fails to articulate a new politic. So it just kind of appears. Presence is like a fluorescence in the dark um, that shows up in response to political darkness and oppression. Now, all of this is to say, let me kind of bring it all together, revolutions and fascisms are tied together. Both of them in our time are framed by or related to unarticulated movements of the power of presence. And while these two push on each other, we have a moment, I think, to consider how to move beyond revolution and these sort of this sort of entangled web of revolution and oppression um, and do something new. The non-articulation piece of it, um, especially because demands aren't quite being made in the same way that they used to, they give us some space while the revolution fascism happens to work on what we want to begin to articulate. There's a great quote by uh, Slavo Žižek. He writes, hope simply means an open moment when you don't know who is in power and then the regime falls apart. So since that's happening, <laughs> so hope is lighting up because um, there's this struggle for power that's happening between the revolution and the oppression. While it's happening, let's look at our desires. Let's look at what we want and what we may articulate for a better world. There's so much possibility there. On the other hand, and this is where it starts getting really dark and deep, while presence rules the day, we're also subject to a terrible phenomenon in our time, and that's mass shootings. Of course, mass shootings have happened before, but we know what I'm talking about when I say the rise of mass shootings. Mass shootings are the social, emotional, and political pressures of this principle of presence being brought to life in the lives of individuals, these shooters. I'm going to refer to the philosopher Franco Bifo Berardi a bit here. Um, he wrote this amazing book called Heroes. Um, I think it's 
Also instructive to read uh, this book called Columbine by Dave Cullen. They're both better at explaining mass shootings than me. <laughs> so um, go check them out if you want these really elaborate examinations. I think they're really great. But I'm going to express an aspect that I want us to talk more about and I don't think is pushed hard enough um, in our examination of these phenomena. So here's what that is. Mass shootings are an attempt to be alive for people whose sense of presence has been totally erased. Let me quote Berardi here to expand on that. So, <clears throat> Berardi says, there are two sides of this phenomena of mass shooting. On the one side, on one side, suffering and humiliation are pushing you to do the only thing that you see as possible. So on this first side, he's referring really um, to the humiliating conditions of neoliberalism, specifically um, the conditions of work and our work lives. And I, I speak about this a bit in episode three, and I also reference him a little bit, but I'm not just stealing his words. I have my <laughs> own ideas, but he's really been informing me lately. The second phase, Berardi says, is the spectacularization, spectacularization of the action. In many cases that I tried to analyze in my book, Heroes, particularly, I'm gonna say these names wrong, but Seng Hui Chu, the South Korean Virginia tech killer, and Pekka Eric Avenen, who carried out the shooting at Jukela School, sorry if I said those wrong, their spectacular consciousness is very clear. They take selfies before, during, and after the event. They send videos and declarations to big broadcasting companies like CBS. They write their manifestos on the internet. The spectacularization that Berardi is writing about. This was true too, of course, of the Orlando shooter, of the Pulse nightclub shooter, who was communicating via social media during the shooting. And, of course, it's true of people who are being shot at as well and who are fleeing the scene, who often turn their cameras on. But I think that has some different reasons and some different tones and aspects to it. Um, but it's interesting that's happening for them as well. So Berardi goes on. They want to be a winner for a second. But at the same time, they also want to be famous. They want to be known by everybody. So I think that this is the crucial point. So I think that the crucial point is the self-perception of the isolated individual who commits mass murder and that this kind of isolation finds a way out in the spectacularization of these kinds of acts. Okay. In episode five, um, which I'm not going to make you refer to, I talk about the contraction of space and time. And I think that this is part of it as well. I'm not going to go into it again, but let me just say, you know, we live in a moment um, uh, that is a moment by moment culture. Our culture has a lot of good things about it. <laughs> and this sort of play by play flip book way of living um, where every bit of the present is narrated, um, news feeds, tweets, multiple online identities that we have to check in on constantly and so on. We're narrating um, our lives so close to the present. And this is making 
it for many of us uh, very difficult to consider multiple futures. There simply isn't room to properly fantasize about open futures, about big futures and many possibilities and everything that's potentially there for us. This is actually just another name for anxiety. When you're so focused on present events that they've seized all but one vision of the future. For instance, you might be thinking because of present events, nuclear war, nuclear war, nuclear war, or the relationship version of that, he's going to break up with me, she's going to break up with me, he's going to break up with me, she's going to break up with me, or whatever. There's not much room for anything else but this obsessive singular vision of the future. There's not room for the open field of possibility that... uh, a healthy fantasy life would allow for us. Things are so close to our sense of constricted time that our imagination is stolen. So our imagination is stolen and the sense of self is stolen because that's a big part of where our self comes from is our imagination. And this doesn't lead up to some Buddhist utopia. It's a rush to constantly keep up with the present. We begin, and you may have felt this in your own life, to feel as if we don't exist. Add to that the generally materialist attitude of Western culture that we're made up of chemicals. We're just bags of water. You know, love is just chemicals for those first three months and blah, blah, blah. We're biological robots. We're our brains. You know, that's it. That's a general Western attitude. No spiritual longing, no spiritual imagination really matters. So add those things together. Okay, this is the picture that you get. It's not a pretty picture. (laughs) We're just earth and water. We're biological robots with an exceedingly decreasing ability to imagine or feel purpose. We have jobs we go to work at that drain even the sense of being alive, like the vitality from us. And in that state of mind, if you don't have the feedback of others, if you don't have the attention economy paying you constantly, like you have you know, 10,000 Twitter followers or whatever, how would you even know that you exist? Your life starts to become a giant blank because you become so exploited by the world we live in that now so values the intensities of presence. So people declare themselves as mass murderers. We talk about mental illness, but... <laughs> They're experiencing not just mental illness, although some of them are, I'm sure, but intense confluences of social illnesses. They feel that they don't exist. Mass murderers don't shoot to kill, they shoot to live. They walk into a room and they try to complete themselves. They try to bring themselves to life by seeing that their actions mean something, that their actions have effects, even if it's horrific. And then they will go on social media. See, see, I'm here. Uh, I'm present, (laughs) you know, to garner this attention. As Barati talks about wanting to be famous, I would say it's even lower than that. It's just wanting to be alive, wanting to be noticed and feel that there is some sense of life. So what's happening with mass shootings is this display of an incompleteness. It's like a sense of total non-being. And mass shooters, interestingly, are typified as someone who has so much intense belief. That's how we try to understand them. But in fact, it's like a state of total non-belief, seeking to believe in something, seeking to believe that they are even real. Mass shootings are a testament to the incompleteness of being. They shoot to live. 
or the being that feels like it hasn't even begun. So, again, instead of viewing the mass shooter as someone who feels his system is complete, view it as someone who cannot feel completeness until everyone, until all existence is with him in death. It's this longing to be, and I will create the sense of being by killing. And then obviously they generally end up killing themselves or being shot. They know that that's going to happen. Mass shootings are the individual trying to erupt presence and complete the feeling of existence. So let me tie this all up in this rather bleak episode. Our current political climate is a political climate of presence. This works itself out politically in the oppressions and revolutions of our time. It exerts itself as social pressure by becoming a mass shooting confluence of uh, these different social illnesses as well. As these mass shootings and resistance slash oppression dynamics take place, our task right now is to pull away from the presence principle and detention economies. We need to do something other than visibility, than presence, but without reverting to the old ways that didn't really get us anywhere either, that uh, became failed revolutions, then failed fascisms, then failed revolutions, then failed fascisms, and so on and so forth. We need to create a culture of purpose that evades revolution. I'm not exactly sure how to do this, (laughs) but I'm working on it. And I welcome comments, so please comment um, if you are there with me on creating this culture of purpose that evades revolution. Um, That's it, I guess. Thanks (laughs) for listening. Bye.